Hello and welcome to the Skytime Podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that promotes Sky and profiles the people that drive the island's economy. It's also a celebration of Sky's vibrant history, culture and environment and aims to gently persuade visitors to spend more time, get off the beaten track and experience more of what our island has to offer. This week, the Skytime podcast returns from its winter break with something to warm us up from the inside. Torrevague Distillery on Slate has just released its first edition bottling, Torrevague Legacy Series 2017. Torrevague is only the second legal distillery on Sky, so this is a big moment for all whiskey enthusiasts. I'm delighted to be joined by Neil Matheson, Chief Executive of Torrevague's owners, Mossburn Distillers. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. Now, malt whiskey production, it's not a business for impatient people, so so this must feel like a big day for Mossburn Distillers. That's right. I think uh, because of the current situation, we're a little bit delayed, but uh, we were four years in the build and then four years waiting for the whiskey to come round. So eight years to uh, the whiskey industry is probably a flash, but to us, it's been a, it's been a long wait. It's been a long wait. So before we talk about the whiskey itself, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about your background, Mossburn Distillers, and how you came to establish a distillery on Sky. So how did you, first of all, get into the drinks business? Uh, well, I've, I've never done anything else. Uh, so uh, I'm now, uh, I suppose, a 40-year veteran. Uh, and I come from one of those uh, Scot- Scottish families where my father once... Uh, came home and, and remarked upon the day being the day he didn't buy a distillery. And it's one of these things that uh, Scotsmen dream of and, and uh, Scots ladies nowadays as well. Uh, and it was just something that every time we went up to the Highlands, uh, I have four beers from the Highlands, so, you know, there were regular trips. We always used to think about whiskey. Uh, and the family drank it. I, I started drinking it. Uh, but when I left uh, college, obviously, I went into the uh, drinks trade and I've been there ever since. But it wasn't whiskey to start with that you were working with, was it? So what was the the move that got you eventually to back to your passion of whiskey? Well, no, I started in brandy uh, and spent 25 years in, in brandy. I was very fortunate that uh, uh, I met some people who invited me down to, uh, to play in the distilleries while they were seriously working. Uh, and you learn a lot by being on hand while while you're uh, watching other people work hard to produce the spirit. Uh, and the brandy industry uh, kept me, uh, um, I suppose, employed for 25 years. But in the background, there was always the, the thought of doing some whiskey. Uh, and in the in the 90s, we we started buying some barrels. We started doing a little bit of bottling. Uh, we started. Uh, thinking that we could perhaps uh, come up with a, a, a catchy brand or a, or a blend name uh, and take it further. So I suppose uh, that it all started uh, about then. Meeting all the people in the whiskey industry is also something, and I was fortunate enough to judge on some competitions where you would meet all of the uh, distillers that you could look up to, and they would tell such wonderful stories that it sort of it wanted to drag you back into the industry. Mossburn was initially known as a as a blender. Talk me through the process of creating a blend and, and finding markets for blends. How did you go about doing that as Mossburn? 
Well, we started uh, with the, the, the basic premise that uh, if you wanted a whiskey, you had to have one that uh, you could make it uh, or have some part of the making, uh, which wasn't distillation. And, and that part to me is the aging and the blending. So it's a, it's a fascinating process because it, it can produce such different results. So when we when we started, we started off just with the thought of producing a, a good old fashioned five year old based uh, blended whiskey, which could be appreciated uh, by different people and used in mixed drinks if they wanted to. And having one product, uh, you know, made you think that perhaps you should have two. So we started to look at malt whiskey, but without the distillery, you're obviously looking at blended malt or you're looking at bottling under uh, an umbrella brand, uh, other people's whiskey. Uh, and uh, it's it's one of these processes where uh, the intrigue, uh, which I think there's a great deal of in whiskey, keeps asking you to do more. Uh, you concentrate on, on what you've got to do in order to try to make a turn, but you're always fascinated by what simply lies ahead. And what lies ahead, of course, is older product, product that has had more influence from your own hands rather than the distiller, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, we started with some blends. We did uh, uh, a couple that were, you know, uh, we, we enjoyed the, the, the fruits of. Um, and then we tried to do some blended malts. But uh, it was always in the island flavors that intrigued us on the blended malts. Uh, and that took us looking for uh, peated whiskey, uh, and it took us uh, looking to the islands where it might be possible to buy peated whiskey or to look to people who were uh, looking to build a new distillery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was a sort of uh, mix of, of of aims that, in the end, coalesced into uh, the desire to put a project together that would actually produce a working distillery. So was it always a frustration through these years that you were working with other people's spirit, that it wasn't your own? <laughs> um, absolutely not on the main part, because uh, when you start talking to the people who actually make whiskey uh, and, uh, and they have some to, to offer you, you realise the length and depth that the industry has gone to to produce this. So, you know, there's a, there's a real feeling of respect for anybody who makes uh, whiskey. It's just choosing from what is offered to you that uh, that sometimes brings up the frustrations. Quite often they don't want to give you what you want. Uh-huh. <laughs> so talk me through the step of going from being a, primarily a, a blender to making the big leap and setting up your own distillery. I mean, it must have had a lot of financial risk attached to it. As part of the, the, the group we belong to, what we have to do is we have to look at the project as a, as a commercial entity. Uh, and then we have to introduce the shareholders to the, to the, to the thought process that, we, that we've gone through uh, and explain to them the length of uh, the investment that, it is, that is needed and the breadth or the depth of the investment that is needed in order to, to, to produce single malt whiskies. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, we were very fortunate that uh, the shareholders were of the same view and thought it uh, an interesting pro- project for us to do. Uh, they were very good also that they wanted to combine it with um, some kind of uh, 
either a philanthropic or a restoration project uh, that, that would bring about uh, more than the, than, the, than the simple whiskey production. So from that process uh, on paper, uh, you then have to move to the reality of it and you have to look at sites, you have to look at water, you have to look at uh, the, the logistics, uh, the buildings that are available or whether you, you, you want to, to, to uh, convert buildings, etc., etc. It's it's uh it took a long time. How many sites did you visit? Very, very difficult to say uh, in one go because uh, I've stood in many old buildings and and thought I don't know why I'm here because it's totally unsuitable. But you always you always have at the back of your thing. No, oh, that would be a nice place to be. So I would say that we probably visited a dozen old buildings uh, that had a heritage aspect which we could be brought back to life. But um, some of them uh, obviously weren't suitable from the uh, from the mechanical point of view. Some of them may not have been suitable from the water point of view. So gradually you 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 whittle them down to 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 places where uh, you can get the basics correct, and then you need to look at the specifics that you want to build. Describe to me your first visit to to Knock Farm. Did you know instantly this is the one? Oh, absolutely! It was uh, it was uh, a site where there was a, a, a magic in the air because of the dilapidated state, but there was a, a sort of feeling that this could be brought back to life. Um, you know, the, uh, the stones are marvelous. There, uh, no matter how, what bad condition you know an old steading or an old building or, or a tumble down castle is, there are some amazing pieces of stonework. Uh, and you can just imagine what uh, activities went on when when the uh, when the steading was in um, good condition and was used as a farm, or previously as the mill. Uh, and then you know, going through some of the buildings and finding the millstones, you think that uh, that it's not a bad idea. And we were very we were very fortunate that um, Ian Noble had had the idea before us as well. And although he hadn't managed to do anything apart from obtain some planning permission. Uh, he he did uh, allow us to see a vision of it uh, on 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 paper. Uh, so we can't claim all the uh, the credit for finding the site. Uh, it it existed uh, already, and the idea, the germ of the idea, had been formed. Uh, I think, uh, <clears throat> interestingly enough, if you'd asked me halfway through it, it might have been a bit like some of these television programs. I might not have known exactly what quarter it was we were going to move in and whether it was going to be before Christmas or not. <laughs> you really did work with the steadings, the existing buildings that were there. Talk about your decision to create a, a removable roof so that you uh, could get your stills in and out. The old building, the central chamber that we've used for the distillation hall, uh, was never going to be big enough for our, our requirements unless we were quite uh, canny with the space. Uh, and on the on the design process, uh, we kept coming up with the problem that once we got the vessels in, we wouldn't know how to get the vessels out without taking the building apart. Uh, so, you know, we discussed this with the structural engineers and they were, were saying, ah, but, you know, the, uh, the old building deserves its slate roof back again. Uh, we had to keep everything in, in uh, line with the listing. And we also wanted, of course, to, to produce uh, the, uh, the square steading back in its real glory. Uh, and at that point, we, we started thinking of ideas. And uh, the architects and the structural engineers came up with the idea that uh, 
if we had to get inside the building, perhaps it would be better to have a piece that came off the building. And the only piece that can really come off the building is a roof. So uh, we then had to look into how, how this was structurally possible and mechanically possible uh, and which part of the roof it had to be and would that dictate where our distilling equipment would be. In the end, uh, it worked and uh, we built a structure inside that allows the area above the still necks to be lifted off. Uh, and it's the still necks that will probably go first, although not for 20 or 30 years. So four years on from the completion of the build, you've got your first bottling, Torreveig Legacy Series 2017. Now, it, it's quite young in terms of maturation of a, of a malt whiskey. Talk me through the thinking behind getting it onto the market so quickly. <laughs> Is that with my accountant's hat on or with my whiskey maker's hat on? A bit of both. Uh, it's a long it's a long time to wait for, for everybody. Uh, we have uh, obviously uh, on one hand we have a need to 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 make the uh, the ongoing business um, viable. On the other hand, uh, we were relatively pleased as we approached the three-year-old with the liquid. Uh, we chose a, a, an aging mechanic that uh, suited I think the first uh, um, year's distillate. And uh, as I said, we were relatively pleased with what, how it looked like as we approached three. And, and during the three to three and a half year period, when we were looking at more casks and tasting individually, we were more than happy enough to, to, to release a, a smallish batch from the first uh, um, six months of, of distilling. It's one of these things that when you look at whiskey in the wood, uh, sometimes you don't really get the youth or the age of it. Uh, it's there's there's no uh, there's no set of stairs in reality that you're climbing. There's just a gradual aging and a gradual development of the flavour. So we were rather pleased at the youthful age at the flavours we had uh, we we had obtained. And when did you have your first tasting of it? Every three months since we started distilling. <laughs> And can you chart in your memory the the evolution of the whiskey? Uh, yes, I think that there's there's certain points where in in certain of the casks you 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 get a, a development that is recognisable. Unlike uh, the filling of the casks, where you can imagine if you fill a, an Oloroso sherry or a PX sherry cask, uh, there's this explosion of flavour that's visible. Uh, after a, a week or two, as the f initial extraction takes place, but it's not—it's um, not married into the spirit at all. It just sits there on top, like a veneer. Uh, and it's when that—it's uh, when the elements of wood integrate into the whiskey, uh, and the uh, development of flavour, the esterification takes place, that you begin to say to yourself, "I think we've got something here." And then you watch some of those aspects as they grow or uh, or or enlarge uh, as the as the aging process happens so for anyone lucky enough to get their hands on a bottle of the limited release what will they find when they pour the first dram what are the characteristics of Torovig? well uh, it's uh i would say that it's surprisingly gentle but quite peaty uh, we've always been surprised by the gentleness of the spirit, uh, and this comes in reality, we think, from the, the shape of the stills uh, and also the, uh, the distillation process that we have uh, we've, uh, experimented with. 
So we think that it's it's a it's a gentle uh, whiskey uh, in its youthful age. We think it's also got um, some of those peaty flavors that uh, won't set it on the extreme uh, maritime side, but won't set it on the uh, on the other end of the um, uh, earthy peaty vegetal side. So we were very pleased that we have, we appear to have uh, a lot of phenolics, but they are as we say, well-tempered, they're controlled, they're managed, and, and they seem to have blended together uh, very nicely. The, the phenolic families each produce a different flavor profile from the iodine to the burnt to the vegetal. Uh, and our, uh, our, our uh, main aim was to take these families and, and roll them into the, the, the uh, natural flavor of the whiskey and then add the uh, wood on top and see if it came out well. This is probably an unfair question, but what established malt is Torreve closest to? Um, I'm not sure, uh, to be honest. Uh, I think that we are probably uh, um, in flavour not dissimilar to to Kilhoman, possibly not dissimilar to, to some of the Kalilas. Uh, we, we certainly don't have the weight at the moment of, of a Lagavulin, and we don't have the, the piercing phenolics of a Lafroig. Um, as uh, we didn't come up with our little uh, strap line by accident, we, we, we honestly think that uh, the tempering of the, of the phenolics is part of the job that we have to do. Uh, and that's how, we, that's how we came up with well-tempered, because you know, our feeling is that uh, all whiskey should have a, have a gentlemanly or a gentleness to it. Uh, and I think that, uh, that there are aspects of the, um, as you call them, the well-known brands or the, or the more, more famous um, uh, single malts that are PT that we, we looked at and wondered if they would come through as, we, as our product aged. But at the moment, at, at, at four years, we think that uh, we've actually found our own path. So how do you go about now breaking into that market where these established malts sit? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not that uh, deeply into the commercial aspects of how our group works. But, uh, we, you know, we're not uh, going to be producing huge amounts of whiskey. Our aim uh, over the first uh, uh, year is to, is to launch the second of the legacies, um, we have, uh, we have four distinct styles of wood that we have uh, laid down that have uh, whiskey in them. And we would like to explore all four of these as part of this series before we settle into what we would hope will define the, the style of the 10-year-old ten, uh, core product. So I think that uh, as we as we manage to to get small batches into the marketplace, uh, we, we we obviously are hoping that they will in, be enjoyed by perhaps first the aficionados and then the, to a wider audience. But I don't think that we will have sufficient stock for the first two or three years of releases in order to get a very wide audience. It just, uh, I mean, we feel that we make enough whiskey but uh, possibly not enough to get to everybody yet. I must ask you about two clear and obvious hurdles that you're facing as a business, not just Torreveg, uh, the whiskey. Firstly, COVID-19. How disappointing and financially challenging has it been not being able to open the, the visitor centre at Torreveg for so long? 
Well, it's it's been a big challenge. I mean, we're extraordinarily proud of the, of the building and how the building has come out of its restoration. Um, you know, we're we're simply p- people who have worked with it, uh, but it's the building that has withstood the, ta- the the you know the time and the passage of time. Uh, you know, as you know, up up on Sleet, it, it can be unpleasant on certain days. Um, so, you know, we, we would love more people to come and see what we've done with the building and how the building works with us. As a, as a business, uh, obviously, we, we were, uh, how to say optimistically, in growth. People were starting to hear about us. People were starting to come to, to the distillery. People were starting to hear that we would be able to be launching a whiskey soon. And I think that that's a very disappointing aspect for all of the team up there, that uh, they had been building on this for two years and then we hit a hurdle uh, that has affected all of us. Uh, and it's it slowed us down. It slowed us down. In, in terms of production, uh, the team have been uh, amazing. Uh, that, you know, that we've, uh, we've set in place the protocols that are expected in a business. Uh, we're uh, making sure that uh, the employees are as safe as possible, but we're also making sure that we're still making some whiskey. I think our biggest uh, problem might be if the whiskey catches on, and we hope that it will, in 10 years or 12 years' time, we may not have quite as much as we hope to. <laughs> the second challenge that you face is, is Brexit and issues surrounding trade tariffs with the likes of America. How worrying is this, not just for you, but the entire Scotch whisky industry? Well, I think that um, nobody likes being uh, picked on. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, as the trade teams of whatever countries are involved or whatever trading entities like the EU uh, um, work their way through the problems that come up, um, I, I believe that, you know, Scotch whisky was going to be an obvious choice for, 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 for uh, some of these tariffs simply because uh, there had to be a tit for tat or a, or a prid, quid pro quo. And, um, you know, it, it is disappointing. Uh, it's disappointing for the single malts, especially because they were uh, in, in growth. Uh, it's the sector we're, we're involved in. And uh, obviously, we would like to have uh, good access to America because it's one of the top two uh, whiskey markets. We would like to have unfettered access to the EU because France, Germany, etc. They're great markets for, for for single malts. But I think that it's it's one of these things where you just have to take what the world gives you and, and move on. Uh, so we obviously are cognizant of all of the elements that are going on. Uh, the SWA is is working hard to try and uh, find a, a, a better foothold for for Scotch whisky within all of these agreements that come along. But, uh, you know, I don't think that we make enough at the moment or we sell enough at the moment for it to be uh, troubling for us at, that, at this point. Obviously, we would like everybody to get back to working, uh, um, you know, in a more polite manner and perhaps uh, without tariffs. All of these things that, that would help us would be good, <laughs> but, but you can't have everything. <laughs> Finally, returning to Torrevig Legacy 2017, you obviously can't have a big launch event. So how will Mossburn Distillers be marking the the first bottling? 
Well, we've uh, we've been uh, very excited about the uh, acceptance of the product in in the retail scenario around around the world. Um, we we have unfortunately got a small amount. Uh, it's been taken up by all of the countries that we we managed to offer it to, and I believe that uh, that there will be very few bottles left by the end of end of next week. Uh, this is all very exciting for us, but as, as you say, it makes it difficult for continuity purposes. It makes it difficult uh, for, pe- for people who miss out to, 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 to get onto our uh, little train, and we want to take them on this journey. So I think that uh, we will be doing uh, quite a few Zoom tastings. We will, we will be talking with the, as, as many people as possible, and we will be explaining to them that it's the first uh, stop on the train, the journey has a long way to go. We see the second uh, release in, in July as being very important to us. Uh, we, we, we're doubling the size of the, of the number of bottles. We hope a, a great deal more people will get access to the spirit. Uh, and, and we hope that obviously from there we can grow. But it, it, is, uh, it is difficult without uh, the usual panoply of a launch and without uh, you know, the handshakes, the tasting and the talking. Neil Matheson, thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to my first tasting of Torve. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of the Skytime Podcast. If you have a story or business to promote, email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. Please also get in touch if you'd like to sponsor Skytime or advertise your business on the next podcast. Until then, stay safe, aichivar, or should I say slancher.